You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. My favorite saying that I like to tell people is what we do, you know, recovering addicts, recovering alcoholics, recovering addicts of any addiction, honestly, is not easy. It's not easy what we're doing. My guest today is named Chris Hunter. He goes by the name Tuna. You might know him from one podcast at a time. Welcome to the show, Tuna. Well, I am Chris Hunter, a.k.a. Tuna, of the uh, one podcast at a time. And I do another podcast, uh, The American Divide. But I guess most importantly, I am a recovering addict with uh, 10 years clean. Side note, I'm a U.S. Army veteran with uh, diagnosed with PTSD. I did one, one stay at a, a, a rehab slash VA hospital uh, in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. And that's how I initially got clean 10 years ago. Um, and that's who I am. <laughs> that's a very brief... <laughs> yeah, welcome to the show, man. And congratulations on 10 years you celebrated uh, here pretty recently. Yeah, October 12th, um, and then my anniversary, obviously, was in uh, 2010. So, you know, 2010 was a rough year for me, and it, and it looks like 2020 has also been a rough year for all of us. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I think I think everybody's pretty exhausted by 2020. Yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. I don't know about down your way, but... Uh, up here, it it feels it feels like the meetings and the and the program is getting thin. You know, I feel like a lot of people are going back out, and it it concerns me. Yeah, it's definitely the same here, man. We have a lot of empty chairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My home group in particular, we used to get a crowd of, you know, anywhere from thirty to forty people, and I live right outside of Philadelphia, so that's that's a pretty normal crowd for us. And uh, these days, I think uh, it's rare that we break double digits, you know, so not good. Same here. I think the last meeting I went to, I think we had four people in attendance and usually it'd be probably 20. Mm. So, yeah, definitely feeling the effects of COVID. So what would you like to know? (laughs) If you don't mind, I'd love to to take a little trip back to 2010 and hear a little bit about what it was like in active addiction and how you ended up going to treatment and, and that whole time period. Sure. At the end of my run, I was, uh, I don't know, I'm not promoting how much drugs I've used, but I, I will say that I was doing, I was doing about three Oxycontin, 80 milligram Oxycontins a day or maybe twice a day if I could afford it because I was selling all my belongings um, and robbing people. (laughs) I sometimes hesitate to say that, but that's the truth is I did do that. And when I couldn't afford those expensive pills, I would I would buy um, benzos, you know, like your Klonopins and, you know, whatever I could find, really. It was bad, you know, it was it was pretty bad. I, I don't think that I ever necessarily lived on the streets, but um, I was definitely using people so that I could sleep on their couches and and get by and, and not be completely homeless. 
but I certainly didn't have a home of my own where I paid bills and, and I earned my way. At the time, my mother, who is a recovering addict, was checking on me every day. And honestly, I think she feared that I was going to overdose. And um, I guess I should mention that I that I kind of did attempt to overdose. You know, I, at one point, I think I took maybe 12 or 15 two milligram colonopins. But yeah, I took a, a very large amount of benzos and just kind of hoped I wasn't going to wake up. And I did, but um, she found out about it and uh, she was very worried that, you know, that I wasn't going to. So she was calling me and checking on me every day. I got to a point where I sold pretty much everything that was worth of any value that I owned. And I was sitting on these train tracks in... Um, you know, like people that live in this area, they know that there's a there's a city right below Philadelphia called Wilmington, Delaware, and it's a, a pretty rough town. And I was living down there with an ex-girlfriend, and I was so depressed that I went and sat on the train tracks right out back of her house. And um, I don't know. I don't know if I was necessarily planning on killing myself, but when my mother called me that day on October 12th, 2010... I was in tears and I was I was just kind of like worn out. I, I couldn't get any more drugs because I didn't have any means to get money. So she called and she said, are you done? Like, are you are you really done this time? Like, are you ready to just go and just get clean and, and try something different? You know, I broke down and I, I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And And my mom knew that as a veteran, I was entitled to uh, certain benefits through the VA hospital. She had already made contact with the VA about what they could do. You know, she wanted to try to forcefully put me into their system and, and force me through rehab. <laughs> and I'm laughing because as we, I don't know about where you live, but where I live, you know, you can't force an addict to do anything they don't want to do, you know, and I'm definitely no exception to that rule. <laughs> When she asked me if I was ready, that's what she did. She came, she left work early that day and came and got me and drove me uh, all the way to this place, which was about an hour away. That was it, man. We, we checked into the VA hospital. They had to put me on uh, a heart monitor for a couple of weeks because I was, I was taking so many benzos that it, they had to taper me down with Ativan because if I stopped taking them just cold turkey... They said I could have had a, a stroke or uh, seizures and died. So, um, you know, the fun, man, the good stuff, the, uh, you know, the DTs. <laughs> um, I don't know. I kind of have like a rotten sense of humor. I like hearing about, you know, people coming down and, and the, the struggle, the sickness, because I think we earned it. <laughs> you know, I've definitely uh, experienced some ugly withdrawal symptoms and uh now looking back i laugh about it because i think that life is all about consequences and um you know you reap what you sow and and sometimes you got to deal with it and yeah it was ugly and i got some funny stories out of it now but at the time it was horrible you know and i'm not laughing at people that experience it but i hope that someday they can look back and find humor in it and and maybe some strength out of it. So I went up to the VA hospital and I, I lived there for, 
I think about two and a half months. It was, uh, I think I did Thanksgiving up there and I came home right before Christmas, if I recall correctly. So I went up there, I did that, and then um, the whole time we had uh, H&I people coming in there and they were helping us, uh, you know, they were they were having meetings for us, you know, for one fellowship or another. And um, I kind of subscribed to one fellowship that, that dealt more with drug addiction. And I made my mind up that when I did decide to leave the, the hospital, that that's you know, where I was going to try to make my efforts at. So when I, I finally did get released, I, I kind of, I went back to Wilmington and, and was living with the girl that I was dating at the time. I did start attending meetings, but I had a very difficult time connecting at first. And I think a lot of people do. I will say this, you know, when I came home, I remember one of the counselors at the hospital once said to me, she said, Chris, you're dealing with PTSD also, and maybe something you can do to create a little discipline in your life is, and in companionship is to get a dog. I did. I have this little pit bull mix, uh, Morgan, who's been by my side ever since. You know, I think that that was very therapeutic. I don't think it necessarily fixed all of my uh, <laughs> addiction problems, but I think with the regimen of doing my 90 and 90s and you know, trying to dig into the program. Plus, I I held myself accountable that that my dog relied on me. You know, I had to I had to wake up early and walk her and feed her. I had to get home right after work to take care of her. I think it was the structure that I needed in that beginning. You know, to get back into it, that somebody was relying on me. You know, because I don't know about anybody else, but in my early days, it wasn't enough for me to get clean just for me because I didn't have enough self-worth. I didn't think I was worth anything. In the early days, that was very important to me. You know, I, I'll admit it, I did it for my dog. <laughs> but it, it grew into something bigger than that, you know? Like, I think, I think that showed me unconditional love. After a while, I started to realize this weird pattern, almost like, a, like how we describe a higher power is if I had a horrible day and I was mean and nasty and grumpy and yelling, you know, the dog still loved me. <laughs> no matter what, the dog loved me. The dog was excited to see me. You know, that was my little buddy and still is, you know, that was important in the beginning to understand that. And, uh, I, I just, I dealt with so much in my life that, uh, you know, I think a lot of the times I hear in my meetings that uh, the drugs were just a symptom, and I think that's extremely true in my case. You know, I, I didn't think very highly of myself. I admittedly thought that I was the ugliest person in the whole world, you know, and I know that that sounds very eccentric and maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, at the time, though, that, that's kind of how I felt about myself. I did not like the way I looked. I would wear hoodies and baseball caps and pull them down over my face. There was so much work in learning to love myself, you know. I remember my first sponsor, that's what he used to tell me. You know, he's like, why do you always wear a hat? Why don't you spin your hat around so we can see your face, you know. <laughs> so, so that was my early days, though, man. That was... uh. 
you know, I, I spent some time at the VA hospital. I climbed the walls there. I like calling um, withdrawal, climbing the walls, because I tried to get clean before, and I, I did it at my mom's house once, and I just went cold turkey off of opiates. I was sick as a dog, and I was from all ends, and I, I was tired but couldn't sleep, and, you know, all the good stuff. And I remember this one moment where I woke up in the middle of the night. There was a movie by William Defoe that was playing it's called uh, to live and die in la and there was this scene from the movie where there's this red flashing light and this crazy music in the background like and i woke up like screaming thinking that i was like in a mental asylum or something <laughs> you know and i'm like i actually had like I think I was probably like in my late 20s and I'm like screaming and I woke up my mom sleeping in the room next door and she's telling me to shut the F up and, <laughs> you know, yeah, craziness, man, craziness, addict stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I love good withdrawal stories, man. If, if anybody's got any good withdrawal stories, please send them my way. I want to hear them. I don't know that mine's anything special. I detoxed in county jail, so that was pretty... uh interesting oh that's <laughs> yeah i do recall from our show though that uh i think it's interesting just just being in your background and and you know your relatives and stuff it's still good stuff man it's it's a uh it's a part of the requirements of getting clean i think is that you have to deal with the consequences you know and it's it's not going to be fun yeah, so that's that's my uh how I got there. Now as for my recovery, I'll say this. I um I had a hard time in the beginning. I um when I first got to the fellowship that I belonged to, I was not as extroverted as I am now. Um in fact, the fact that I host a podcast was a huge step in my life also because I used to get extremely shy when I publicly spoke. And even when I was in a room alone, you know, recording my own episodes, I would get extremely nervous and stage fright. And um, so the moral of that is that 10 years ago, when I would show up to a meeting, I would sit in the furthest corner and I wouldn't associate with anybody else in the room either they did way more drugs than I did and I was nothing like them because they were junkies and I wasn't or I did more drugs than them and they're a pussy and I'm sorry for cursing but <laughs> I used to think that they're a pussy and they they you know they shouldn't be here because they they haven't fell hard enough and you know that's that's toxic thinking nowadays when I meet people and they suggest things like that I tell them right off the bat that that's not what we're doing here that's bad thinking, you know, that's how people die. Uh, so yeah, so in the beginning, I didn't talk to anybody. And, and I would say for about a year, I sat in the back and, and kind of white knuckled it and just held on to the seat and didn't talk and didn't, didn't have a sponsor. I didn't do any of the step work. I didn't have anybody to do step work with. It took quite a lot for me to to get out of my comfort zone and, and to actually communicate with, you know, like-minded people because I didn't want to believe that they were 
the same as me. Yeah, I think that's a, a trap that a lot of us fall into, especially in the beginning, is trying to compare ourselves to other people. And I think for me, one of the reasons that I was trying to do it is I was trying to disqualify myself. I hadn't gotten to the point where I realized that I was an addict and it was like, you know, I'm here to get my, my paper signed for probation. Uh, I'm not like you guys. And I, I guess in my mind, I thought if I wasn't an addict, then when I got off probation, I could go back to doing what I was doing before. So, yeah, I can definitely relate to to that about having that closed mind and, and trying to find the differences and trying to compare how much I use to this person or what substances I use compared to this person. And, and that whole kind of idea of like, I guess, like a scale or a chart of like what's worse or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, in the beginning, it's so easy to disqualify uh, everybody in the room, you know. Uh, I remember specifically, my first thought was, is that when I do get a sponsor, the sponsor needs to be a veteran, because veterans only see the world the same as other veterans, and we experience the same things. You know, I, I think it's tribalism, and in its core nature we are looking for a tribe that best fits who we are. And we just don't realize yet that this room is our tribe. All of the people in here, whether they're black or Hispanic or Asian, you know, if they're a woman or a man or, you know, transgender, gay, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter anything. All of these people, this is my tribe, you know. And um, I will say this, one of my biggest fears with this most recent election, uh, and I won't, I'm not here to talk about politics, I'm just, I've noticed that politics found its way into my meetings in particular, and they're, it's dividing people up, and I, I don't like that, because it shouldn't, you know, uh, that's not what I come to my fellowship to do, I don't care who you vote for, we're here to all help each other get clean. I don't know if you've experienced that, but up here there's some, uh, you know, hard left and hard right, hard-headed people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think that's part of the beauty of the traditions if we adhere to them is that we're all the same when we're in the rooms. It doesn't, like you were saying, it doesn't matter what we look like, what our ethnicity is, religious views, any of that, political views. And I think there's something to be said about what you're talking about, tribalism for people in recovery and people that aren't in recovery. I think a lot of people fall into that category or that mindset of tribalism, just like you're talking about far left, far right. Yeah. Everybody find everybody finds a tribe and then, you know, it's you're you're in that tribe and ride or die like. Yeah. And I don't want to go to a meeting that is all one direction or another. Uh, you know, politically or religiously or whatever, I don't want to have to find a meeting like that. I want to just go to any meeting and know that I'm in a safe place, you know, and I hope that anybody that does listen to this, that I encourage you to not ostracize people that don't think like you, because at the end of the day, it doesn't, whatever happens outside the rooms doesn't pertain. We're, we're here to discuss addiction, you know, and we're here to help each other regardless. I have personally witnessed 
uh, it was a while ago. It was a few years ago, but I actually witnessed a very, very serious uh, white supremacist, you know, slowly kind of back away from some of his beliefs. And I, I kind of witnessed him opening up to African-Americans in the room and I was quite thrown off. And honestly, this is the kind of person that he was very intimidating. I was intimidated and I don't get intimidated very easily. I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I, I pride myself on being somewhat of a tough person, but uh, this was the kind of guy that I wasn't willing to play around with. But in the end, we actually did have some very good conversations. You know, unfortunately, I haven't seen him in quite a while, but, you know, the last few conversations I remember having with him, he said that he just didn't have the luxury of bringing his personal beliefs down into the rooms, you know, and I thought that that was amazing. That's the way it should be, you know, so... I don't know how we got on this hard political conversation, and I truly apologize. <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. You know, I guess I just sound like one of them hippie guys nowadays. I just want all of us to get along, man. <laughs> well, I think it's an important topic, especially in the current climate that we're in, and to remind people not to bring that stuff into the rooms. You know, I've, I remember early on in my recovery, I was struggling with the higher power concept, and there were a couple of people that would endorse specific religions in meetings, and then it was a big turnoff, and then I got to read some literature a little bit more, and some old-timers made some comments about, you know, we're not, we're not here to push a, a specific religion, or we're not here to, to talk about that kind of stuff. And that kind of reassured me, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good, like, I can still figure this thing out, and I don't have to to listen to to this outside information that people are bringing in and i think a lot of that at least for my home group comes because of where we are you know we we rent a room from a church so a lot of people associate sure our meeting with the church with the building that we're in and and so we've made an effort the core members the trusted servants we make a an effort to let people know like hey we're we're renting this room we're not affiliated with this church we're not affiliated with any religion and and we we try to make an effort to let newcomers know that just because we're in this building doesn't mean that that we subscribe to their views and and in our fellowship you're allowed to pick your own higher power sure and that's extremely important you know i've seen i have witnessed um newcomers you know damn near get chased out of the rooms because they just you know some of us old timers and i guess i fall into that category now <laughs> You know, it sucks getting old, and it certainly, uh, the old, the old hurts, but the, uh, I guess my amount of clean time is, is, uh, a part of my pride, you know, but it also gave me some kind of clarity towards the way our fellowship is, and, you know, I think, at least from my perspective, I usually try to suggest to a newcomer, um, just to have a seat and try not to overthink it. And I've I've heard some people suggest that you need a sponsor tonight. You should start working on your first step like tonight. You need to get like deeply involved. Do a 90 and 90 right now. Start right now. Tomorrow, where are you going to be? Well, let's go to a meeting. And and you know, it may work for some people, but there are some people out there that have never experienced a strict disciplined or regiment in their life and that might be extremely overwhelming to them 
From my perspective, I usually just try to suggest just have a seat, you know, share if you want to. And uh, when you're ready, you know, there's good people in here that want to help you. The 12 steps are not something to be afraid of. Uh, the parts where they mention God, I'm not a godly person. I don't subscribe to any religion. And I'm not downing people that do. I'm just suggesting that for me, at this moment in my life, my particular fellowship is my higher power. They're a collection of people that we can see the success. We, you know, like if I'm going to be a pragmatic person, I can look at the elders of my community and see their success. Therefore, I can use that as a guideline of this is something I can believe in, you know, and that's what I do. I'm not saying everybody has to do that. That's me. <laughs> Good stuff, man. I like the simplistic approach, and I think that's one of the gifts of recovery is we can just follow a few simple suggestions. We don't have to overcomplicate it, and I know that's difficult to do. At least from my personal experience, being an addict, I like to overcomplicate things, but man, I like that simple approach of just take a seat, listen, share if you want to, like not trying to force all these ideas and stuff on somebody when they're new. Because at least for me, when I was in my active addiction, I didn't have any kind of structure to my life. I went where I wanted. I did what I wanted. You know, I showed up to work sometimes. I didn't have any kind of structure. And I think if someone had been real stern and told me, you you need to do this, you need to do that, I probably wouldn't have taken it well. Actually, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking back on it. My first meeting was at a different fellowship one of the old guys that was there was very stern and was telling me, you need to do this, you need to do that. And is like, you know what? Screw you. I'm out of here, man. Like, I'm not coming back. Yeah, it's too much, man. That's, that's uh, you know, like we say, easy does it, man. You know, like I think that that's, that's about as simple as it is. And, you know, I'm just as guilty as anybody. I overcomplicate my life. With as much time as I have, I now have the luxury of planning out an absurd amount of tasks in one day. And and somehow I managed to accomplish maybe not all of them, but the majority of them. But that's after a whole lot of work on myself and and developing. And I think in the beginning we have these high ambitions of, you know, maybe we lost a spouse or lost our children to child protective services or whatever and they want to gain that back like that first day. And I have bad news is it's not possible. This is a very kind of slow process, but it's extremely rewarding. Here I am sitting in this beautiful home that my wife and I purchased, and we had to develop a plan on how we were going to be able to afford this house. It's, it's not, it's my favorite saying that I like to tell people is what we do, you know, recovering addicts, recovering alcoholics, recovering addicts of any addiction, honestly, is not easy. It's not easy what we're doing, you know, and if anybody's telling you that it's easy, <laughs> they're still, they're, they still haven't figured it out yet. They don't know what they're talking about. It's not easy what we're doing, but I promise you, I promise you it's better. You know, I, I would put a thousand dollars on the table and bet you that in two years' time, your life is going to be much better, much better. It may not be easier. Maybe your credit is still dog shit. 
Maybe your job sucks or you're having a hard time getting a job. Maybe you're struggling because the economy shut down, you know. But the way you will feel about your personal self is going to be better. It's going to be a lot better, you know. The interpersonal relationships that I have with my family, the fact that I have a wife and children now is all due to me getting clean and working on myself with the 12 steps and a sponsor and sitting in a metal chair for 10 years every week, at least, you know, sometimes I slacked and missed a week here and there, but that's all, that's all I did. (laughs) I love hearing the messages of hope from people that have changed their life that have, you know, surrendered and, and worked a program and they're starting to reap the rewards of, of that new way of life, man. I, and I, I can just echo what you said. If you have any doubts, like your life is going to get immensely better, not using, I mean, I can only speak from my own personal experience, but I mean, my life is so much better today than I ever imagined it would be. And it hasn't been easy and it's not always fun, but you know, it, it beats the alternative. So I really appreciate you sharing that hope and, and encouragement. Yeah, ma'am. You know what? Uh, let me let me say this because I am I am a big fan of being honest nowadays, and I don't want anybody listening to this to think that here's this guy that is doing everything exactly as suggested. So let me tell on myself right now. Okay, I'm actually only on my fourth step. I struggled for a long time with doing the step work, and I took a long break between three and four. Because my life got busy and and I don't believe in excuses nowadays. Maybe I was just lazy or putting it on the back burner and not making it a priority. But I will tell you this. I've actively dived back into my step work and realized, you know, that this is something I need to do. I haven't finished my 12 steps. I'm very honestly relatively still new in my step work. And a lot of my clean time was just maintaining and just sitting in the chair. So I have to be honest about that. And I don't want people to think that I'm some guru, you know, of the 12 steps. I'm not. I'm a guy that makes mistakes. You know, I've done stupid things. I've dated in the program. I've dated newcomers. You know, I've almost relapsed because I've chased after women that were on their way to relapse, you know, and I thought I was going to save them. (laughs) Thank God, you know, I turned back when I did and and just realized I was living in insanity. You know, I, I don't think that there is a perfect recovering addict. I think we're all making mistakes here and there. But I didn't use, so I'm still here, and I think think my clean time still counts. <laughs> so that's me, man. That's uh that's tuna. <laughs> I can't remember if you've told the story on your podcast or not, but I if you have, I don't remember. I'm just curious about where the nickname Tuna came from. Listen, now I have to ask before I tell a crude story, because it is a crude joke. Are are your listeners okay with this? (laughs) So when I started working at um, the shipyard up here in Philadelphia, uh, which, by the way, was a huge milestone in my life. I think I had uh, maybe a couple years clean or, or three years clean. And... At that point in my life, I bullshitted my way into every job I ever had. And 
shortly after the boss usually realized that I bullshitted and I wasn't quite capable of doing what I promised. And the shipyard for me was this golden opportunity to learn a real trade and make a career out of it. That was the goal anyway, or at the very least use it as a stepping stone. So this is a very long winded story. I apologize. <laughs> so, um, when I applied, they, uh, you know, they liked the fact that I was a veteran and I uh, had to take a test and I did really well on the aptitude test. I got approved to do this apprenticeship program for welding and, and ship fitting. So the beginning of it, when I started doing the apprenticeship, is I had to go to this weld class in the shipyard for about three months straight. And I was there with 10 other guys and uh, they were my classmates and, and we got pretty close and we used to joke around a lot and talk shit because shipyard workers are a lot like sailors or soldiers or any other, you know, group of guys sitting around talking shit all day long. One of my friends, this, this gentleman from uh, the Carolinas was a uh, older black gentleman and we were all bullshitting about the the lengths of our uh, our members <laughs> at least they were anyway and he was kind of a taller fella but his buddy was shorter this other guy was a little shorter and they were laughing and they were they were joking they were like oh you white guys and your little ones and i said no nah, no nah, nah, man you're the same height as me don't bullshit me dude and he was like well what does that mean and i said well listen man humans are in proportion to themselves okay a giraffe has a long neck and long legs because that's what giraffes are. A tall human has tall everything, okay? That's the way that works. <laughs> short humans have short legs and short arms and short everything else. So they started cracking up, you know? They, they thought that was hilarious, and they said, Well, Tuna, you're a short little stocky guy. What are you, like a like a soda can? They didn't call me Tuna then, they... They said, uh, you know, what are you, like a soda can? I said, you guys have no imagination. I said, I'm like a tuna can. <laughs> so that's where it started at, is I actually made my own nickname accidentally. And then from then on, they thought they were making fun of me by calling me tuna and tuna can. But I just laughed it off because I'm, you know, I like good comedy. And it literally became my name at the shipyard where 1,100 guys worked at and nobody knew who my name was other than Tuna. So that's the story of Tuna. And now the, the first show that I started was called Yardbird, Tuna because a shipyard worker is sometimes referred to as a yardbird, especially a guy like me that talks too much and makes crude jokes. We're, we're yardbirds. We're sitting around squawking all day, you know? So that's where that name came from. That's a great story, man. We're kind of reaching the end of the show. I usually like to open it up and let the guests share whatever they have on their heart. The floor is yours, man. I appreciate it. All right, so I don't know if you guys can hear it right now, but my wife and children are running around back and forth upstairs. Now, when I usually record my podcast down here, I am severely irritated and annoyed and ready to go yell at them. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to share how 
honestly, I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful that I have a one and a half year old upstairs um, that loves her little brother who is only a month old. He was born premature and very small. And my wife that when I forget that I agreed to do an interview for a podcast and I tell her 30 minutes prior, oh, by the way, I got to run downstairs because I totally forgot, you know, and, and my phone just reminded me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my wife is always, you know, extremely understanding and encourages me to do these things because I think she knows in some kind of way that this keeps me away from doing other stupid things. I'm a very grateful person. I, I tell a lot of dumb jokes and, and I'm crude sometimes and I like to troll the internet sometimes. But the the real me, the real person that I am, is extremely grateful, you know. Once upon a time I was borderline homeless and um suicidal. I honestly was suicidal and I didn't own anything. I sold the little bit of belongings that I had, uh, just to get high. And here I am now in this beautiful home, you know, with a with a great career and a beautiful family. And I feel like I'm about to sing that song by, uh, I can't remember the name of the song. Oh my God. I mean, it's like going off in my head right now. Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to send it to you, Brett. I truly apologize. That's the worst thing to do to somebody. It's bad, man. Sorry. But I feel, I feel gratitude. You know, that's, that's really who I am. I'm a very grateful person. And, uh, just happy to be alive, you know, and I'm enjoying this. So that's all I got for you, brother. I don't, I don't know if that was wisdom or not, man. Hopefully your, your, your listeners don't uh, give you a bunch of negative feedback about this guy from Philadelphia. <laughs> Do you want to plug your podcasts or social media or anything like that? All right. I guess if, uh, if you guys want to hear some crude humor with, with my co-host occasionally saying wonderful things, you could check us out at one podcast at a time. And then if by some chance you have a problem with discussing politics when you probably should not, I have a podcast about that too. And that's called the American divide. And I'm, I'm just Chris Hunter. I'm a guy that if you reach out to me and say that you're struggling, I will answer the phone. I don't care if I don't know you. I don't care if you're on the other side of the country if you're hurting and you need to talk, you know, find me. I'm available and I will listen. Because I think sometimes that's all we need is just somebody to listen to us. That's all I got for you, brother. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. It, it was a pleasure. Thanks, man. You keep up the great work, dude. I like the show. I love it, man. Tuna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Congratulations again on 10 years clean. Be sure to check out his show one podcast at a time. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.